Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Massive crisis in Ethiopia today. About 1.7% of the population of 100 million, they're blind or severely visually impaired. 80% of this blindness is either treatable or preventable. About 60% is due to cataracts. You know, when people in the morning, when people w- wake up in, in often the rural parts of Ethiopia, their main preoccupation is, is you know, simply, will I eat today? And so everybody in the family has to pull together so that they can just eat. Now what happens is if one person in that family is blind, not only are they not a producer, but they're a consumer because they take up the time and energy of other people in the family to take care of them. So blindness creates not just poverty, but extreme poverty. They say there's two ways of looking at a problem. One is to say it's so massive, there's nothing I can do about it. Or the other way is to say it's so massive, you can't miss it. Well, when I got out of medical school, I I became an ER doctor. And as you can imagine, I was up a lot of nights and I was sort of in just a chronic circadian chaos. And I remember thinking it'd just really be nice just to have uh, something where I could have some regular hours. And I heard about this course in uh, England at the London School of Tropical Medicine. And uh, I remember distinctly one day, it was the end of a long day, I was very tired. And at the bottom of the amphitheater, there were five men that were going to make a presentation. And I remember distinctly the fifth man, he looked so old and so boring. I thought to myself, it'd be easy to kind of s- slip out the back when, when he gets up to, to talk and go home and get some rest. But when he stood up, it's just like the whole room was hit by a bolt of lightning. His name was Professor Sir David Morley. He was the one that developed the oral rehydration uh, spoon. He's the one that developed um, the growth charts for children so you can tell when they're starting to fail to thrive. But he had spent most of his time in Africa and his focus was on simple things. We tend to think too, too high tech. And so when I came back to the United States, it never really left me. I just had that one uh, lecture from him that one day. I started going down to Africa, and as you go down there, you realize that so many of the, the problems, they have very simple solutions, just things like shoes, things like um, clean water. And so over a period of time, a friend and I, we started uh, what we now call Tropical Health Alliance Foundation. I remember uh, distinctly seeing a little boy, and he was leading his mother. And as he was um, leading his mother, some of his friends went running by him, I'm assuming they called out his name because they were saying something. 
and he just watched them go off in the distance and, and you know he couldn't play he couldn't be with his friends because he had the, his mother that he he led around and we asked around and we found in the area that we that we work there's about three million people and if you can believe this there's only one ophthalmologist but he was hamstring because it, it takes money. I mean, you have to buy the lenses, you have to buy the medications and so forth. And so he was only able to do about 500 cataract surgeries. So when we came along and we were provide, able to provide him with extra funding, he was able to really ramp up um, the number of surgeries he could do. And we set as our goal to do um, 20,000 surgeries by the year 2020. Thank God, by the year 2018, we've already done 20,000 surgeries, so we're way ahead of schedule. Dr. Samuel is one of the most amazing, really committed Christian men I have really ever met. He grew up in Western Ethiopia in really extreme poverty, didn't even have shoes, but he was bright. He did very well in, in school, ended up being accepted at the University of Addis Ababa, which is pretty much like the Harvard of, um, it's the best university in, in Ethiopia. So what Dr. Samuel has been trained to do is he makes a very small incision. He's able to remove the lens and then he puts it in an artificial lens. In developing countries like this, they will have kind of like a one lens fits all we don't do that. We actually measure every single eye. We, we have kind of a mantra. We say that since these people are so poor and they have so little, they really need the very, very best. So as a result, most of the patients end up with 20-20 or 20-30 vision. They, have, they, they really have very, very good vision. Elise was 23 years old. She had, over the last year, developed dense cataracts, and she had a child who was now four months old, and she had never seen the child. She lived out in a very remote area, and when we got there, she was sitting in a hut, the shutters were closed, and um, she was just severely depressed. What I like about cataract surgery is just the immediacy of it. Things happen so fast. We went out the, in the four-wheel drive, we helped her in the, in the back, because of course she couldn't see. About an hour drive back to the hospital, got her to the hospital, she got on the table. And even when they injected, you know, she just really didn't show much expression. Afterwards, they put on the patch, walked her out. And the next morning, when that eye patch was removed, it was just like the curtain dropped. And there was all of a sudden just a completely new life for Lelise. The first thing that struck me was what a beautiful woman she was because she had, I, we'd never seen her smile. And all of a sudden her face became just, it was like a light bulb and her eyes just twinkled. And then the tenderness, you know, of a mother being able to see her child. Let's just not say we cried, but our, our eyes, they, they kind of started to sweat. <laughs> John Stott, he, he used to say that the church is a centrifugal force that throws us into the world. And once in the world, we connect what we see with our eye with what we hold in our hand. Like I remember when the dental students went out there, I was so impressed because they just arrive on Monday and Tuesday morning, they're pulling teeth and doing things. If I just go out there as a doctor, Sam, an endocrinologist, what do I do? I can't just send it under a tree an endocrine, you know. And this one dental hygienist, she said, you know, I, when I first came out here, I thought maybe I wanted to be a dentist because 
Now I think I'd want to be a doctor because I could do so much more. And then the, there's some boys from Idlewild Arts Academy. They're out doing the film. And one of them, a couple days later, he made a fantastic film, which the School of Dentistry uses. He said to me, he said, I wish I could do something. All I have is my camera. So we all hold these things, but we don't realize that we have them. I want to be a dentist. She wants to be a doctor. He doesn't know he's doing so much with his camera. The problem is a lot of times we, we, we can see things with our eyes, but a lot of times where we're really blind is to, is to what we hold in our hand. But you're uniquely in a position to do, to do. Well, I'm retired now, but I spend a good share of my time just trying to create awareness and uh, you know just doing fundraising and advocating for what they're doing uh, in, in Ethiopia. I always like to say they're the machine and we're the ones that fuel it. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've heard people say that. They say, my, it must be really hard to go to Ethiopia. And, um, and I think, man, what are you thinking? I mean, I, they're, and everybody that goes there, they almost invariably, they'll, they'll comment about how joyful the people are. And I, I kind of tell people, you know, when I come back, here's when I, when I suffer. When I go there, that's where I live. <laughs> it's just, a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a joyful place. If your eyes aren't sweating, if you're not wiping away tears, we'll get a doctor to check your pulse. Profoundly moving. I can imagine that any number of different themes could emerge out of that story. We could talk about mission. What is your mission in life? What are you doing to make a difference in the world? We could speak of purpose. What's the one key guiding purpose for you? We could speak of healing. Are you healing in your world as Jesus did in His? We could talk about service. What are you doing to serve the world around you? We could certainly talk about legacy. What legacy will you leave behind? How will the world be different because you were in it? In fact, truth be told, that's why we originally chose the story. Joel Royer on our staff who helps find and bring the stories together to our media department, who then does such an excellent job of capturing them. Media department and Joel and I, we all together were talking and thinking, and the more we listened to the story, the more we thought about it, the more we considered it, we finally made a decision to use the video this week rather than next, when next week's theme is legacy. Now, I have to tell you, we did this without Larry's permission. Larry is on a trip to Ethiopia. <laughs> is that any surprise? So, Larry, if you happen to be watching right now, I'm really sorry. We decided to change and use your story for a different purpose. We decided to talk about character. We did it without Larry's permission because people of character don't give permission to use their stories as illustration of character. No, 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 I, that, that's not me. You need to find someone who truly is a person of character. So I'm sorry, Larry, I hope it doesn't affect our friendship.
But we changed. We changed because as we considered it, we saw character. Now, I can imagine that that immediately raises the question, well, just what is character then? And how does this story address character? What is character? Well, I can tell you one thing character is not. Character is not image. Image is what we want to portray to the world, what we want others to see. That's image. Image is Facebook and Instagram. Images photoshopped and posed ready. Images retouched and perfect. It's good. Everything is good. That's image. Due to image, you have certain deep feelings. You slam your laptop shut and you just bang your head on the table and think, why do I do that? You've just spent an hour or two just, just going through Facebook, looking at all the people, the people you know, their lives, the perfect lives. The beautiful homes, handsome husband or beautiful wife, the just frustratingly perfect children. You know what I'm talking about. It's all been airbrushed, retouched, prepared for the public eye. It's PR ready. It's image. And its effect is to depress others. I could never live up to that image. That's not character. Personality. Personality is not character. Personality, we are told, are the, the ordered set of actions and attitudes and approaches to life that each individual has. It's a certain bent toward living life in a certain way. Sometimes we'll say, boy, she really is a personality, isn't she? He has a big personality, takes over the room. She has a sunny disposition. He's a warm and caring individual. All of those address in some way personality. Character can be made manifest through personality, absolutely. But personality is not character. Reputation. Reputation is not character. Reputation may or may not be who you really are. But one thing is sure about reputation, it's what other people think you are. It's what you either want them to think or what they have come to think because they have seen, they've listened, they've heard. Stories have been told about you. You have a good reputation. You have a bad reputation. But reputation is not who you are. Reputation is not character. So what is this thing called character? If it's not image, if it's not personality, if it's not reputation, just what is character? Well, maybe the best way to speak of it is to say that character is the ethical and moral fiber that makes up a person. If there is ethical and moral fiber there, that's character. Character is who you really are, not who you're trying to project. Not who you hope people think. Not what you've airbrushed and retouched. Character is who you truly are. Billy Graham says, character is what you are in the dark. Lord Macaulay said, reputation, that's what people think of you. Character, that's who the reality is. It's who you might be even if you were to be obscured from the view of others. That's character. Some of you have had the privilege of visiting 
Times Square in New York City. And if you have, you've probably seen some of the costumed characters that stroll about, stride about among the tourists, looking especially for tips for their performances. Well, I say they stroll about. That, that's not really true anymore because several years ago, they became confined to certain spaces in, in Times Square. They could no longer go everywhere. Why? Because of their behavior. Because of how these people acted. Once they put on the mask, once they put on the costume, their behavior became increasingly reprehensible. Spider-Man, first of all, got in the face of a tourist who wouldn't give him a tip, and then a police officer confronting him, he punched the NYPD officer, got arrested. Spider-Man. <laughs> Imagine that. Or what about Super Mario, who got arrested for groping a woman? Or what about Elmo, who got arrested because of the commotion he was causing by screaming anti-Semitic slurs into the crowd? And you listen to that, and you say, what is going on? What in the world? Well, a psychologist from Tufts University talking about those very incidents there in Times Square had this to say. He said, when we are anonymous, the unwritten rules of society fall by the wayside and we engage in acts we wouldn't usually want to be held accountable for. Masks are a good physical substantiation for that. In other words, watch what people do when they're hidden behind the mask. That's why the late, great John Wooden, the UCLA basketball Bruins coach, said, don't worry about your reputation. That'll take care of, your, of itself. Work on your character, who you really are. So that's our focus today. We're going to go to a passage that I think contains some very interesting and important words about such matters. It's found in the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. We're going to talk about character and about character growth and about the fact that such things are not easy and they will cost us. They require effort and energy. Now, there's the risk when we talk about such for people to think, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we getting into legalism? Aren't we getting into works-oriented righteousness? So the Apostle Paul, as he writes Romans 5, addresses that first, addresses it right up front. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul starts out with the word, therefore. I've said it before, no doubt we'll say it again, but just by way of reminder. When you're reading Scripture and you come across that word, therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. Because what's happening is a transition is being made. And the writer is saying, because of all that I've just said, therefore, this is what is to come. So you have to know what was just said. That's how Paul begins. So what has he just said? 
He has spent Romans chapter 4, the whole chapter, actually starts further back in chapter 3, the whole chapter of Romans 4, he has been talking about this act of God's unlimited and free grace, the fact that we receive the favor of God just because he's a good God, because he's merciful. And the way we get access to that is to place our faith in Jesus Christ, and it's ours fully, freely, completely a gift. That's what he's been talking about. So as a transition and as a way of reminding people of that, he says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, since we have right standing with God, since we have been blessed with God's favor, since we have an assurance to stand before him in peace, since all of that is true, and then he'll go on to talk about things like character. It's as though Paul wants to be utterly clear. I'm going to talk to you about some things, he says, that are going to require effort on your part, going to require work on your part, but don't confuse this. Don't think you're putting forth this effort and engaging in this work in order to gain the favor of God. No, 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 no. God's favor is a gift. You already have it. When you placed your faith in Christ, you have an assurance of standing before God in peace. He says that. That's clear. Just be clear on that, Paul says. In fact, did you notice how clear he wants you to be? The last line of verse 2 that we read, he said, We can now boast in the hope of the glory of God to come. Looking forward to that moment when we will see the full glory of Jesus, the full glory of God displayed when the kingdom of God arrives in its power. Do you know how many times we've spoken of that in very different terms? Well, I hope I make it. I hope I'm ready. I'm just not good enough. I'm not sure I'll be there. And Paul says to people who have been justified by faith, he says, what are you talking about? We can boast in that. It's coming. I can't wait for it. I will see him in peace. Now, I've taken some time to say that because when we talk about character growth, I don't want you to confuse it with an attempt to earn the favor of God. That is not what it is. It is an endeavor to grow as a disciple of Jesus who has already been accepted by Jesus. So that's how Paul begins. First two verses of Romans 5. But then notice what he does next, starting in verse 3, Romans 5, 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us now Paul takes us through some steps toward character growth he starts first of all with suffering no one wants to suffer Paul actually says, we can glory in our suffer, sufferings. In fact, he, what he's essentially saying is, don't start asking when you're suffering, what's wrong? What did I do wrong? Is God angry with me? No, 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 no. He says, that is moving you in a direction in which you can take glory and hope in what's happening. He starts out with suffering, hard times. And then he says, as through the Holy Spirit, 
You endure the hard times. You develop perseverance. What my father used to call stick to Put some elbow, elbow grease on that, he would say as I was washing the car. Have some stick to some endurance, perseverance. And then Paul says, as you deal with the suffering and you develop perseverance, something else grows in your life. It's something called character. Ethical, moral fiber grows into your life. Character. But that's not the end of the road. Paul says that character will lead to one other reality, and that reality is a holy, sacred optimism about the future. It develops into hope. Now, just think through the steps he's taken us through. If you happen to be a first-year medical student here today, you're into it now, a week, two weeks, and already you're suffering. Oh, my goodness, what did I get myself into? Can I make it? You're trying to walk around like everything's good, just like all the others are. Everything's good. And while everything's looking good on the outside, you're on the inside. I, I, what, what am I going to do? You're suffering. Hard times. But Paul says that's not all of the picture. Because as the Holy Spirit works in your life and empowers you, as the community around you comes around to support and sustain you, and as you work hard, that suffering will develop a stick to a perseverance within you. And you will have grown. So that over the next four years, you will have grown. As that perseverance becomes more enduring, it will morph into something called character. Moral, ethical fiber. So that when they hand you that sheepskin, you can now turn to the future. You can look at those patients who are now waiting to see you with a certain sense of guarded, but nevertheless eager optimism. I've been prepared. I can now go with hope into the next step. That's what Paul is talking about. He's saying that to us as disciples. The difficult times, the hard times, sometimes just superficial suffering, sometimes dark, deep, profound nights of the soul. But by the Holy Spirit, as we endure, we develop perseverance. As we become stronger in our perseverance, character, moral, and ethical fiber grows. And then we can turn and say, I can do all things through the one who gives me strength because of what has happened on this journey. That's character growth. I want to read you some words from a pastor preaching on this passage. His name was Don Heyman. The title of his sermon was Rejoicing in Our Suffering. He captures the essence of this passage this way. Paul doesn't just say we rejoice in the midst of suffering, period. He says we rejoice in the midst of suffering because it produces something. What does it produce? Look at the next phrase in your study Bibles. We rejoice in the midst of our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character is the blockbuster term here in Romans. That's the Greek term doikamas. And it literally means someone or something that has been put to the test and has measured up. If you've ever traveled to the Middle East, you may have taken note of the fact that you can visit a potter and you will look at a vessel, a jar, and it's been through the furnace. It's been through the fire and it hasn't cracked. 
It hasn't broken. It comes out whole. It comes out complete. And you turn that vessel over, and on the bottom there is stamped dokimas. It means approved. This is a vessel of character. It has withstood the test of the furnace where it has been refined, and it hasn't broken. It is whole, complete. That's character. It requires effort, the expenditure of energy, work not to gain the favor of God, but because we are favored by God and the Holy Spirit now empowers us. Love the way Helen Keller, that great woman, lived a great life, says it in general terms. She says, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through the experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. It calls upon you to be active, to invest yourself, even in the hard times. So a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that, Anita and I, had the privilege of taking a trip to Canada, preaching engagement, but then we were, were able to take several days of vacation. We visited a place that I think, we'd been there 20 years ago, but I think it must be the, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. A place called Banff, Alberta, Canada. Oh, my goodness. The beauty is stunning. Doesn't matter, Canmore, Banff, Lake Louise, Jasper National Park, wherever you go, it just gets more and more overwhelming. The beauty, the splendor is breathtaking. While we were there in Banff, we summited Sulphur Mountain. Now, for those who summit Sulphur Mountain, it's, it's no small attempt. It's 7,500 feet, 8,000 feet, somewhere along in that range. It requires the expenditure of a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of work. People don't out train before they attempt it and get to the top. Anita and I summited the mountain. And there on the mountaintop, we could look out over the splendor of the mountain range before us, the valleys, the green, the rivers, the lakes. It was a spectacular vision. We got to eat there and just take it all in. Brought back many memories with us. In fact, we brought back a picture. I want to show you a picture of us on the summit of the mountain. Look, look right here on the screen. There it is. <laughs> I mean, it was spectacular. Oh, maybe I didn't mention, we didn't actually climb the mountain. We went up in a gondola. Did I not mention that? I mean, that's the way to do it. You just walk on and sh up you go, and there you are, can eat at the restaurant, come back down. Nothing, no energy, no sweat, no perspiration. It was a beautiful kind of experience. Now, one of our media volunteers must have taken some issue with that on my part. Because they worked with the picture a little bit. Now I want you to look at the picture after Raquel Sherwood was done with it. <laughs> just take a minute. I mean, that's just wrong right there. That's awful. I guess she feared, well, if you're, if you're skimping by that way, I'll, I'll fix that for you. Beautiful experience. But we missed something. Something that a blogger named Randy Alcorn captures with these words. He says, mountain climbers could save time and energy if they reached the summit in a helicopter. 
But their ultimate purpose is conquest, not efficiency. Sure, they want to reach a goal, but they desire to do it by testing and deepening their character, discipline, and resolve. God could create scientists, mathematicians, athletes, and musicians. He doesn't. He creates children who take on those roles over a long process. God doesn't make us fully Christ-like the moment we're born again. He conforms us to the image of Christ gradually. That's what discipleship is. In our spiritual lives as in our professional lives and in sports and hobbies, we improve and excel by handling failure and learning from it. Only in cultivating discipline, endurance, and patience do we find satisfaction and reward. And those qualities are most developed through some form of suffering. That's what we want to avoid, hard times. We don't want to have to develop the endurance that will get us up the mountain. But in the kingdom of God, the sweetness of the summit is deepened by the exertion of the climb. I know we pray different. You know what we pray? We pray, oh God, I want to be on the summit. Can you take me from here to there in your gondola of grace? I want to go to heaven in a lazy boy. Thank you, God, kindly. Amen. To which God responds with one word, nope, <laughs> or maybe three words, ain't going to happen. Because the truth is, character development requires work, investment, difficult decisions that stretch us and challenge us. But in that, they change us. I'm going to guess that somebody here this morning walked into this church facing a fork in the road. You're on the horns of a dilemma. You have to make a decision. There's an easy way out. There's a way out that it's good. I can get through it, get done. Nobody will know. Could be in your marriage, trying to decide. It's just that the neighbor's lawn is so green. Could be finances. Just play with the numbers a little bit. Could be in your research. Just shade it a bit. Not enough to get noticed or caught. But it'll make the results look so much better. I don't know where it is. But you're facing a decision. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Simple, but oh so hard. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. That requires character. Remember what character is? Moral, moral and ethical fiber. One of the reasons I say do the right thing is because of the last thing Paul says here. Remember he says, hard times, suffering, lead to endurance, stick to itiveness, which grows into character. Character, however, he says, doesn't disappoint us <clears throat> because out of character comes hope. With Paul's permission, I'm going to broaden that. Hope not just for you, but for everyone around you. So that when you make that decision and you do the right thing, do you know who's going to thank you? Maybe not right away. Remember last week? We talked about to the third and fourth generation. 
One day your children will thank you that you did the right thing. Your grandchildren will thank you that you did the right thing. Your great-grandchildren will have a heritage on which they would have missed out because you had character. It sheds hope abroad in wider and wider ways to more and more people because of character. Last week we started in this series, A Life That Matters, by recognizing that the character of the God you serve will determine the impact of the life you live. Today I want to personalize it and say to you that your character not your image, not your personality, not your reputation. Your character will determine the impact of the life you live. Your character. So do the right thing. Others will be grateful. Hope will be born. And it's right there that we come back to today's video. Because unless I miss my guess, Somebody here says, that's a powerful story, a stirring story. You say, I see how it can illustrate service or, or mission or purpose or, or, or legacy or healing. It can illustrate so many things. How does it illustrate character? Well, I would say this. Because of the character Larry and two or three other people and a circle that has grown. Thousands of people in Ethiopia have hope. They can see. Because a few people made some hard choices, we have to do something. Thousands have been affected. Larry tells me. He said the number of people today in Ethiopia that can see if they saw you, they could look you in the eye, smile at you, shake your hand. The number of people for whom that has happened already could fill your sanctuary, every seat in your sanctuary, between 11 and 12 times over. Just imagine. I watched that video numerous times this week because I couldn't get through it without weeping. Just looking at the impact that had happened. Because somebody says, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to go through some hard times, but there'll be something on the other side. I'll grow as a process of doing this. Thousands have hope. Larry did not give me permission to say that he's a man of character, but I'm telling you that. But he did give me this permission. He gave me permission to share with you a text he sent me this week. He was on his way to Ethiopia, had stopped in the UK, was with a niece and some friends, and they were doing some sightseeing there in the UK. He and I were texting about some things, theology and so forth, that we often do. And then he sent me this text, and I sent a text back and said, Oh, Larry, can I please share that? And he went dark, he went silent. And I waited and waited. Didn't come. Finally, I was going to bed. I texted him. I said, I hope I didn't offend you by asking. Could I share it? And I went to bed. Next morning, I woke up. The text was on the phone. He said, I just woke up. I've been asleep. Sure, you can share it. <laughs> so here I share it. His text, a bit lengthy, but please listen. Randy, three years ago, I was backing out of the parking lot of a post office in San Gabriel. All at once, I heard a big bang. 
I looked out of my back window and saw nothing, so I got out of my car and went to the rear of the car. I found another car had backed out, and we had collided. The driver of the other vehicle was a young Chinese girl with a driver's permit. Her father was in the car with her. They were both extremely nice people. There was virtually no damage to my car, but there was significant damage to their car. It's one of those really frustrating moments of superficial suffering, hard times. Significant damage to their car. It seemed like it was arguably a little bit more my fault, so I told them to get an estimate and I would write them a, write them a check for the damage. A couple of days later, they came back with an estimate of a little over $1,800, so I wrote them a check. This occurred in May. For month after month after month, when I went to balance my checkbook, they never cashed the check. Finally, in December, the father wrote to me and said that the damage to their car was not that bad, and he wanted to know if he could just destroy the check. I was flabbergasted. They could have easily just lived with the damage and kept the money. I asked the father to have his daughter pick a charity that she would like to make a donation to, and I would make a $2,000 donation to it. Two or three days later, the girl called back with a charity named Days for Girls. Days for Girls. I looked the organization up on the Internet, and it was my first introduction to the enormous problem that girls in developing countries have at the onset of menses. Now, please listen to this. The purpose of this trip, the trip Larry's currently taking, the purpose of this trip is to see if we can get program started in Ethiopia. We have several different pieces and people who are very interested in doing it. What I would like to do now is to bring them all together so we can work in collaboration. I don't think it will be difficult to raise money for this project, but I must say it's something that I'm not going to be advocating for in public. Women's periods are probably not my spiritual gift. <laughs> we like to involve ourselves, though, in projects we call SPUD. S-P-U-D, SPUD. Simple, practical, understandable, doable. SPUD. This project fits all the criteria. I would like to see if we can help 25,000 girls by 2025. This will be a new challenge, very practical, and a lot of fun. I want you to think about that for a moment. It came at a moment in time, I admit, superficial suffering. Just a momentary hard time. But it came at one of those moments in time, those hard times, when most of us, whether in our minds or actually doing it, we react, come on, can't you watch where you're going? What's the problem? Look what you did to my car. And then we drive away angry and it ruins the rest of the day. What did Paul say? Hard times develop endurance. Endurance develops character. Character sheds abroad hope. So just think about that. 
over a momentary hard time that would frustrate most of us. It just could be that within a few years, 25,000 girls will say thank you, thank you, thank you. Why? Because two drivers, three people, had character. Character. To look at a situation and say, this may be a hard time, but this is not going to overcome me. I'm going to do something about this. And because you've been working in that way by the power of the Spirit of God, there, there, there is, there was an endurance there, a character that said, we can do something beyond anything we imagined. Spread hope in the world. I want to ask you a question. It's a very simple question. I understand it can be phrased and stated in different ways, but all told, it's really just one simple question. Do you want your life to matter? Do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you want to leave footprints for the kingdom of God in the world? Do you want to change people's lives? Do you want people to know when you pass off this mortal coil, that person made a difference in my life? Do you want to do that? Then be a person of character, of moral fiber, moral substance because the lives of people of character matter in the world. Their lives will ripple out to touch many shores which they never could have predicted, deeply mattering to others. Do you want your life to matter? Then remember, don't forget, never forget it's your character, not your image, not your personality, not your reputation. It's your character that determines the impact of your life.